If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get ASHA continuing ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code SUP20 for the insanely low rate of $59. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this evening's episode on pediatric dysphagia assessment and management. Hi, Caitlin. How are you? Hey, good. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, I'm so excited for tonight. Um, I really like how you kind of set the stage and built up tonight's talk with last week's two-hour CEU on pediatric dysphagia red flags and hallmarks. So this is getting into the nitty-gritty of the evaluation process and then treatment possibilities. So I'm really looking forward to diving in deep with you tonight. Okay, so shall we get started? Yes, alrighty. So like Leanne said, we're going to be doing assessment and management. I would love to talk about this topic with y'all for hours and hours, but we have two hours. And so we're trying to cram as much good information as possible into this time frame. Um, I've, I've got as much as I possibly can in this two hour window for you guys. Okay. So I, I just wanted to start off too. My name is Caitlin Brown. I'm a pediatric speech therapist. I work in North Georgia at a private practice. Um, we have occupational therapy, speech therapy, and physical therapy at our office, and I have been working there for four years now, where I started out just kind of, I saw all different types of kiddos, language, articulation, swallowing. I worked previously with adults, and swallowing has been my passion since graduate school, and so when I switched over to pediatrics, I realized really quick that it was extremely different from adults. Um, so I started doing a lot of research, attending different courses, and then I was treating more and more kids at our clinic. And now I am head over heels in love with pediatric dysphagia. So here, here we are. Um, now, obviously I am not an expert, um, but I am trying every day to further my knowledge. I'm continuing to take courses and continuing to try to better myself as a therapist. So everything you guys are going to hear tonight is mixed from the research and then obviously personal experiences and what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. I love it when folks are like, oh, I'm not the expert. Like, it's because we all have this like vaulted, like theory of like what the expert is. Like they are the end all, the be all, the pinnacle of all. And the more we like dive deep into a topic and really learn about it and, and get enough knowledge to be able to present on it, we realize how much more out there there is to know about something. So we're like, I could, I'll never be the expert on this because there's so much more out there. But yes. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, I mean, research will never die, which is a good thing that, you know, keeps driving our practice. <laughs> but mm -hmm. um, so just to kind of start off, guys, I just wanted to know who attended last week's class. So Leanne has a poll that she's going to run. It is, I'm not going to hold it against you. If you didn't, I'm purely just curious. Okay. I think everyone has answered. So I'm going to end the poll. Um, and it's split right down the middle, 50-50. Okay. 
Well, for those of you that did come last week, thanks for coming back and hanging out with us again. For you, those of you that didn't, that is totally fine and you may not have needed it or you're just more curious about this. Either way, we're glad to have you. So our next question, and again, this one, totally personal opinion. I just want to know, what do you think is the most important piece of the assessment process? So I gave you some options there. Just take a stab at it. Like I said, this is completely personal opinion. So the options that we have for the most important part of the assessment process for pediatric dysphagia is the oral motor assessment, the case history, food and liquid intake assessment, the paperwork review, or goal writing. I really wanted to put like both one and two, both <laughs> all of the above, <laughs> but then I was mm -hmm. like, yeah, okay, that'll be a little much. <laughs> And, and one of our participants uh, mentioned like, it's all important. So they yep, probably yep. wish you had like a, yeah. <laughs> like all the above option. Yeah. All right. And so I'm sharing our results and the majority of people went with case history. Yep. And the second most popular was food and liquid intake assessment. And no one voted for any of the other options. <laughs> hey, but you know what? I would agree with y'all on that. I would definitely, case history is my number one as far as if if I'm not going to get anything else, if I'm not going to see anything, like let's say the kiddo refuses to eat or drink anything for us, you know, if they're not willing to let me anywhere close to their mouth to do an oral motor assessment, and I have no paperwork from doctor's offices, all I have is a referral, because we get these a lot, that literally say ST to evaluate and treat feeding problem. <laughs> it's like, yep. you know, so now the goal writing, that is a very close second. Obviously, you want your goals to be appropriate. However, if you can't get anything else, you can always get the case history. Um, and even that sometimes is a little bit limited because it depends how good of a historian your parents are. So, so let's go ahead and jump into our assessment portion. Okay, so this is just kind of what do we need to know first. So obviously, we talked about our history. So this is our case history. This is that collection of information from your parents, your caregivers. This is the one that's really going to give you that true picture of what the kiddo is doing, what they aren't doing, what they're having trouble with, and then just what their daily, like their daily life is, their daily, you know, activities and meal times and things like that. So when I start an evaluation, my first question to the parents is, you know, just tell me a little bit about what's going on. What are your concerns? Where it's just that real open-ended question. And oftentimes, if you have a parent that is really attentive to their child and they're truly concerned about what's going on with their feeding and swallowing abilities, they're going to basically give you a book, which is fantastic. And I will sit there and I'm just typing. I've even pulled out my phone sometimes and recorded. If it's like a real complex kiddo that I've reviewed their paperwork beforehand, I'll just ask the parent for permission and click record, and then I can go back and listen and make sure I don't miss any important information. But this is one where a lot of times this will spark your other questions that you need to ask. And it also makes you, I think, a little bit more personable to the parent um, versus just kind of going down a checklist of questions. So that's just Again, that's just kind of what I do. You can gather your history however you prefer, but obviously, as we well know, and like we talked about last week, getting that history is key. Um, it's key in the identification of feeding and swallowing dysfunction disorders. 
And it's also key in identifying if they have any other comorbidities or anything that might influence their, their abilities to participate in your therapy. Okay, so that kind of leads you into following up, like I said, with those questions about their medical history. So I just shared with Le Leanne and she is gonna upload it after the course to um, the website for you guys to view. There's a really good assessment template that Asha has shared with us for pediatric feeding history and clinical assessment. And this is one that if you are just starting out or even if you've only been doing evaluations and feeding and swallowing for you know a year or so, this is what I started with. And now I pretty much just, you know, I have my own routine and I know the questions. I generally always take this with me though, because sometimes I'm off my game. I'm not, you know, my day is not going great. And so I don't want to miss anything. And I'll just kind of go through this to review. Um, so this is something that we will kind of chat about, but she'll have this available to y'all too after the course. So, you know, you're getting the birth history, right? You're going to get any complications that were during pregnancy, during delivery, um, the basics of, okay, did we, were we preterm, were we full term? Did we stay in the NICU at all? Did we receive any services while we were there? Any respiratory concerns, um, congenital malformations, conditions, um, things like we talked about last week where there's other disorders, diseases, things like that. Any kind of hearing or vision impairment, any kind of diagnostic procedures that they've had completed, which we'll touch on in a little bit too. Talking about their swallowing and feeding history. So were they breastfed, bottle fed? Are they currently doing one of those? Um, do they take a spoon from the caregiver? Does it have to be one specific caregiver? Do they self-feed? Do they use the pincher grasp? Um, are they using an open an open cup? Are they using a hard spout sippy cup, soft spout sippy cup, straw sippy cup, all the sippy cups? <laughs> And then obviously, are we on a tube? If so, what kind What kind of um, feeding consistency are we on? Are we on a certain formula? Do we have a milk protein allergy? How often are we getting the tube feeding? Um, and like I said, I'm just running through this for you guys, just as something that I, these are things that you're going, you're going to want to ask your family. Um, but like I said, this will also be shared with you guys. And then it jumps into, basically what the child will or will not consume. Um, if they have history of poor weight gain, coughing, choking, gagging, again, all of those red flags that we went over last week, they're right here. And for those of you that weren't with us last week, um, I do have a couple of these on the slides today that we're gonna reference as well. So you're not totally lost either, okay? So that's kind of the history part of that form, which like I said, it's, it's very detailed, which is great if you're just trying to if you're just starting out and you're not super familiar, um, it's a great reference tool for you guys. Okay, so the second one I have listed here, current abilities. So this, you know, we, I think we as therapists, naturally we fall into, okay, well, what's the problem? Versus we also have to remember, you know, what can they do? Um, this goes for anybody. Like we don't want to constantly point out flaws. Obviously, yes, you need to know what is the problem, what's going on. What do we need to do to fix it? But we need to know, we need to know what they can do right now um, because it's going to be pretty rare that a kid's going to come to you and be doing absolutely nothing. Now, does that happen? Sure. But even if they have an extremely weak that swallow breathe pattern and they're on a tube, they're still doing something with their mouth. So again, just kind of that 
overall assessment of what we can do. Um, okay, so then our impairment. So obviously this can range from postural impairments to pharyngeal phase dysphagia. So this includes your poor um, oral motor strength and co uh, coordination, rotary to, oh my goodness, sorry y'all, rotary to anterior loss of the liquid, premature loss of the bolus, oral spaces, selective eating, refusal to sit at the table for meals, um, psychological trauma based around foods or other parts of life, um, refusal of foods, aspirations, the list goes on and on and on, okay? Your next one is the comorbidities. And again, this is a lot of what we talked about last week, but I do have this on another slide. So that's one that we do have to really pay attention to because we need to know, okay, well, how is this disorder affecting this concern, the feeding and swallowing, okay? Um, so limitations in participation. So is the child able to eat with their family at the dinner table? Are the parents having to cook different meals for their child? Can their child eat at school? Are they embarrassed to go to a birthday party? You know, again, those kind of limitations. So they can range from true physical limitations to environmental to social limitations, okay? Um, your environmental influencers, so this can be positive or negative influencers. Um, family support, do they have that good family support? And a lot of times with our feeding and following kids, this goes towards the whole family, okay? I can't tell you how many times I have families come in and mom is 100% all in. She is ready to do whatever it takes. And then grandma comes with her and grandma's like, she is just fine. She just doesn't want to eat. She doesn't like those teas, but she's going to sit there and eat those teas. I'm not letting her leave the table. Okay. So then you have to, you know, there's a there's a heavy education piece with that. And sometimes it never changes, but a lot of times when we get those non-believers, as I call them, into our sessions, they see, oh, okay, maybe there really is a problem and maybe what they're doing is actually effective. Um, so that's one where anytime I have a parent tell me right off the bat that somebody in their family is not totally on board, they don't really think there's a problem or they just, you know, they're just not so sure about therapy. I'm like, well, bring them in, you know, the more the merrier. And when we were on strict COVID guidelines, um, well, I mean, we're still fairly strict, but when we were super strict and it was the one parent back, mask, everything, we even Skype family, other family members in so they could still be a part of the session. Because again, that's a huge piece of that. Um, and then also, you know, your child's food preferences. Um, we have to be sensitive to that in, in knowing that, you know, I don't really love Brussels sprouts, okay? So that doesn't mean that I wouldn't try them, but I'm not going to just regularly eat them. So we kind of have to be sensitive to that too. All right, and our last one here, quality of life, right? So I think a lot of times we, we kind of think of this in adults. It's really heavily used in your literature with adults in the nursing home, acute care, when you're dealing with swallowing patients, obviously quality of life is huge for these people because they've been eating and drinking their entire lives. And I think for a lot of people, for pediatrics, they don't necessarily think of quality of life because, well, I mean, personally, I'm not really sure, but I think that a lot of it is, is you know, maybe they haven't tried a certain food yet, so they don't know what it tastes like. And so they just think, 
oh, well, they don't know what it's like to not have it, so they're fine. But honestly, I think that's kind of the opposite. So it's just like when you have, you know, a three, four, five-month-old that is still on the bottle, but they're they're starting to get interested in food. You know, they're watching you eat. They're watching every bite that goes in your mouth. So just because they haven't tried it yet doesn't mean that they're not interested in it. Doesn't mean that they don't want it. So just again, something to pay attention to. And obviously, quality of life is really important with our tube feeding kiddos, right? So that's one where whether they're at risk for a feeding tube or they already have a feeding tube, all of those factors kind of come into play. All right. So we reviewed all of these um, in last week's course. I just wanted this really to be available for those of you that didn't get to come last week. Um, and then if any of you wanted to reference it in the future, anything like that, I just really wanted that to be available for you guys. Okay. So this one, Leanne, we've got our next question. We're ready to poll. All right, it's up. And which specialist do you work with the most? And you have options of gastroenterologist, pulmonologist, dietitian, pediatrician, ENT, or other. All right, okay, so. I'll end the poll and share the results. So we can see that it's kind of a tie between gastroenterologists and pediatricians, kind of splitting the majority of the votes. Um, also dietitian and ENT. So I, um, I personally work the closest with my GIs and my pediatricians as well. So that's kind of, I feel like that's a general kind of, I guess, rule of thumb. Um, here, I was talking about this last week, but here where we live, um, the hospital that we work closely with, they have an aerodigestive team, and that's comprised of the gastroenterologist, pulmonologist, ENT, dietitian, and speech therapist on staff there. Um, and so that is one, honestly, I'm very fortunate because prior to, they just started the aerodigestive clinic about two years ago. Um, and prior to that, I already had a good working relationship with all of those specialists. And so it just kind of flooded right into that area. Um, <clears throat> so, all right. So we're just gonna kind of go through each of these specialists and then the parts of the documentation and talk about what they are, why they're important, um, why you might deal with them, okay? so. Obviously, your gastroenterologist. Um, I honestly consider these guys my best friends. We have Skype dates, we have phone dates, we have just about everything. Um, and I say that kind of jokingly, but in all honesty, I think that that is that is how I've gained the respect of them because I'm constantly calling them about my patients, um, and I have that open line of communication with them. I think they appreciate that because it doesn't seem like that that was something that was happening previously or with other clinics. Um, so, but I think it's, you know, it's super important because almost all of our feeding and swallowing kids either have constipation, diarrhea, weight loss, vomiting, reflux, you know, something like that. Yes, Leanne. Um, so I was wondering, um, are the GIs referring patients to you or are, are, are you getting them from the pediatricians and you're like, we need to loop in GI and then you're building that relationship? Like which, which way is it coming? Like, are they sending you patients? And so it's their patient that you're working with, or are you also sending patients to them and like, you're kind of doing a, a back and forth like that? Yeah. Um, so honestly, it's a mix. 
So when I started out at my job currently, it was pretty much only from pediatricians and they were coming in and, you know, the pediatrician was monitoring them for weight loss or was giving them Miralax for constipation or they're on, you know, they were thickening with rice cereal or oatmeal for reflux, different things like that. And nine times out of 10, I was sending to GI. And so that was when I started working, you know, having lot, a lot of phone calls with my GIs. And then I also, that kind of led into a good educational piece for my pediatricians too, is that, you know, if these different things are happening, let's go ahead and refer to GI and make sure that there aren't any true, you know, concerns there that they need to deal with before they come to me for therapy. Um, which has been extremely helpful. And honestly, I don't really know when the turning point was. I would say probably about two years ago is when it started that I started getting more and more of my referrals coming straight from the GI's office rather than pediatricians. Um, because again, they were finally getting, they were getting tired of me requesting for specialists. <laughs> and um, I think they just, they finally realized like, this girl is not going to stop bugging us. We might as well just send them to the GI first. <laughs> so, um, but I really, yeah, I honestly, now I probably get more referrals from our GI and our pulmonology offices than I do from just straight pediatricians. Okay. So we'll just kind of jump back in there. So with the GIs, like I was saying, you know, a lot of these kiddos, are going to be your kiddos that are dealing with weight loss, um, diarrhea, constipation, reflux, GERD. Um, you see even EOE with your GIs. You'll see, you know, a milk protein allergy, which kind of ties into the allergies a little bit later. But oftentimes, GIs are kind of, I feel like that's starting point for a lot of our kids. Um, so if you have a kid that has a really complex medical history <clears throat> and they're dealing with multiple things, GI is kind of that, it, essentially it's like the pediatrician of specialists is kind of what I <laughs> classify them as. If you're going to start anywhere, you need to start there. Um, just because, you know, even as adults, as, you know, adults that don't have any other issues going on, if you don't have a healthy gut, it throws off your whole body, your whole system. Um, same goes for kids, okay? So they need to have a healthy gut. They need to make sure that, you know, they're having healthy bowel movement just because we, you know, it's like we talked about last week with the constipation. Okay. Well, if you're backed up, you're not going to want to continue to put food in because it's got to come out somewhere. So then they end up vomiting or they refuse foods and, you know, it's a slippery, slippery slope. So to kind of continue on that with your GI doctors, this is one where they often have a dietitian that works on staff. So the GIs that I work with personally, they do have two dietitians that I work very closely with, especially with my tube feeding kiddos. And in building that relationship, this is something I would definitely encourage y'all all to try to do. And in no way, like, I just want y'all to know when I'm talking about my relationship with these specialists, it wasn't easy. It wasn't one phone call. And then all of a sudden, they were calling me all the time and they were sending me all these referrals and they were just wonderful communicators. It was me being that squeaky wheel and bugging them over and over and over. And then they finally realized, okay, this woman is in it for the long haul. Like she wants, you know, she has the best interest of her patients at heart. 
she wants to help them. We want to help her. We want to help our kids, you know, and they realized that it was going to be easier to work together than just not talking to me at all. <laughs> so I say that to not only, I don't want to discourage you from doing it, but I, I really just want to encourage you. If you, if you feel like you don't have that good line of communication, just keep pushing. Now I still have one pediatrician that I cannot get on board um, with a lot of the stuff that I do. And you know what, if that is my only, my only issue right now, I'd say I'm doing pretty good. So not everyone is going to love you. That's, that's normal, but the better, the better line of communication you have with these specialists, the easier it's going to go. So I've even gotten to the point where as soon as they have an office visit with a kid that they, that we see for therapy, they just fax us the office note, whatever that, that day, that visit, they fax it on over just so we have the most current documentation. So, sorry, I kind of got off track on that one, but with the dietitian. So this is one, like I said, we work very, very closely with our dietitians that work with our GIs. So this is one where I have their personal line to their, or well, direct line to their office, not their personal cell phone, <laughs> but their direct line to their office. Um, because a lot of times with our tube feeding kids, you know, this is one when they come in for therapy and we're ready to reduce the tube so that we can start increasing the amount they're getting by mouth, or we need to see if it makes a difference, all that kind of stuff. Those are things that, you know, we can't send a fax request and wait for a few days and then they come back in and, you know, it ends up being a two, three, four week process. It needs to be, you know, within a day or two. Um, so that's something that the GI and the dietitian and really the pulmonologist too, we have all kind of agreed on like a 48 hour call return. So that's, that's our max. Um, and then obviously if it's urgent, we just let them know that it's urgent and we have within by the end of working day or if it's after a certain time, you know, that kind of thing, we'll return it the next morning. Um, and that goes for me too, because they'll call me when they have a patient in office and ask me a question. And obviously if it's urgent, then my, um, our receptionist will come and get me from my session and just say, Hey, so-and-so is on the phone. I step out, talk to them for a few minutes, whatever I need to do. Um, if it's not urgent, obviously they leave me a message, same kind of turnaround for me. Um, and again, this did not happen overnight. This was two, two, three, four years in the making, but it has made my life so much easier and it has made their life so much easier. Most importantly, it's the most helpful to our kids and our families. So with your dietitian, with working on those tube feedings, that's when sometimes you'll run into these dietitians that they don't want to be involved. They don't want you to be involved in reducing the amount that they're getting via tube. They want to be, you know, number one, they want to be the one that's in charge. Um, I haven't had one of those in a really long time, not since adult world, but that is something that you can come across. And that's one of those that I just encourage you, you know, kill them with kindness and continue to be that person that's sharing your experience in therapy with that child. Tell them what you're seeing, why you think it's important that you're making these changes um, and see if they would consider it, you know, from that standpoint. So if, 
like I said, I could talk to y'all about this for hours. So Leanne, you'll have to keep me on track a little. So, okay. So with our pulmonologists, so these, you know, I call them our lung specialists, lung doctors. Um, these are ones that I never, I honestly never worked as a pulmonologist in the adult world. I, I mean, I had read documentation from them from hospital stays and things like that, but I never directly spoke to them. Um, and when I first started with pediatrics, I had a little one who had laryngeomalacia, tracheomalacia, and striders, all things that don't really exist in the adult world. So I was like, okay, hey, Google, what is this? <laughs> and then, you know, it obviously eventually went into more scholarly research of all of those, but you can quickly look them up on Google too, and it gives you just a quick description. But your pulmonologist says this is going to be really important. Obviously, if your kiddo is having difficulty with any kind of aspiration, just overall structure of the bronchioles, of the lungs, all of that kind of stuff. And that is one that it plays a huge role in their ability to safely tolerate foods and liquids. Um, obviously, if it's going down the wrong way, we all know that that's a problem. <laughs> so, and your pulmonologist, they're going to be very helpful in just really navigating that world. Because like I said, it's one that, I mean, I didn't know a lot about it beforehand. And it's not something that I would say you're, I mean, obviously none of these are, you're not going to be treating any of these, but I think it's really important for you to understand them and to know how they affect your child that you're treating. Um, okay, so then we have our ear, nose, and throat. So these are, these are our guys who can also be our best friends, right? So I had a kid that came in, um, they were having extreme difficulty swallowing. They had had a swallow study. They were referred by their pediatrician. I looked in this child's mouth and their top holes were this big, okay? You can't swallow with tonsils like that as an adult. So first place I sent them, ear, nose, and throat. And within a week, that child was set up to have their tonsils removed. And now they're doing great. <laughs> now that's like golden story, right? <laughs> but it does happen like that sometimes. And, you know, I don't even, I don't blame the pediatrician because Sometimes like crazier things have happened. That child may not have opened their mouth for the pediatrician because a doctor's office is scary and we have toys at our office. You know, we get to do the fun stuff. So who knows what it was? All I know is that was the issue. Sent them over to ear, nose and throat. And then now they're rocking solid foods, no issue. Okay, so that just kind of goes into that assessment piece, which we'll, we'll talk a little bit more to here in just a second about, you know, the overall oral assessment, you've got to look in the back of their throat, okay? Just like you have to check for a tongue and lip tie, you have to look at the back of their throat. It doesn't matter if mom and dad have to hold them upside down, you got to look, okay? So that is where, you know, ear, nose, and throat also, obviously, they're your guys that are going to be looking at any kind of vocal fold dysfunction, um, paralysis, semi-paralysis, so one-sided, different things like that. So then we've got, obviously your pediatrician is going to also be your best friends because they're the ones that are gonna make the referrals to all of these people that we're talking about. So you wanna keep them on your good side. And they, honestly, that is one thing I will say with pediatricians, at least in our area, again, this is my experience. Our pediatricians, they want 
they want to do what's best for the for the kids. Um, every once in a while, you'll get the ones that are well. No, I'm not referring for that kind of because I didn't think of it kind of people, um, which is unfortunate. But that's one of those moments where you share that with the family that, well, I tried to get this referral going and your pediatrician would not send it over. And then they can make the choice on what to do going forward. So then you have your psychologist. So this is one for your kiddos that may have ARFID. They, you are going to want to work with a psychologist if your child has a, a true diagnosis of ARFID. Um, and sometimes also just other anxieties around food. It doesn't have to be true ARFID. A psychologist can be extremely helpful to you. So we have a couple in our area that are really good behavioral psychologists. And then also we have some trauma psychologists that I have worked with previously. Not so much based around food trauma, but other trauma that has thus influenced their eating and drinking. Your occupational therapist. So this one is pretty near and dear to my heart. So we, um, we recently developed a feeding clinic and we offer the outpatient and intensive options at our clinic. Um, and it's just comprised of speech therapists and occupational therapists. Um, so there's a lot of gray area when it comes to pediatric feeding and swallowing, just uh, sorry, feeding and swallowing dysfunction and disorders world between occupational therapists and speech therapists. So technically for occupational therapists, it is now in their scope of practice to treat swallowing disorders, which is crazy. And you're probably all like, what? If you didn't already know, <laughs> um, and all those little like red sirens and flags are going off. Um, that was kind of my thought the first time. But if you work with a good occupational therapist, they will be the first ones to tell you that they did not receive any kind of adequate training on it in school. And rarely do they do any kind of deep, like true swallowing therapy. So now feeding, different story. Obviously, they're going to work on the self-feeding skills. So using utensils and, you know, different behaviors and obviously the sensory side of things. Um, now, I will say the sensory side of things is really where you get into that gray area. It is definitely not black and white because as speech therapists, we can treat sensory feeding concerns. Um, but what I really like to stress to my fellow SLPs and encourage them to seek out an occupational therapist is when it goes from just being sensory concerns to a true like sensory processing disorder of some type. Um, so that's where a lot of times if I think it is truly something sensory where it's affecting their entire sensory system, I'll talk with my occupational therapist We'll do an evaluation. If they if they do determine that it is sensory based, then I'm not afraid to take a back back seat and let them do the sensory side of things. Um, because 90% of the time, there are other things that I also need to work on with that kiddo, um, whether it be working on their chewing skills or swallowing, like actually swallowing. Um, they may be pocketing, you know. There's a number of different things that I can also be working on. So I don't necessarily have to discharge. It's just that 
I'm not necessarily going to be the one introducing all these new foods. So I'm going to step back and let the OT do that. Um, so again, super gray area because yes, technically we can do it, but I think it's very important to also, you know, know when you're out of your league. And it's okay to say, I don't really know what to do with that. You know, there, and, and also sometimes I think we can do more harm than good. If you don't know enough about the sensory system, then you can actually do more harm than good. Um, unfortunately, I've seen that many times when kids will come to us for evaluations and they've already seen three or four feeding therapists. And it's because these feeding therapists weren't confident in their skills or their abilities, but they didn't say that. And so they tried different methods that are not evidence-based and they ended up driving the child in the opposite direction. Yeah, Um, I love that you kind of brought up that idea that, um, you know, a therapist might not be very confident in their skills and then they don't say anything to their clients, to their patients about that. So I kind of, can we spend like two minutes and kind of like dive into that a little deeper? Like, I wonder what you would recommend if you get a referral and you realize that the needs of this patient kind of exceed what your current ability level, skill level, and experience is. Mm -hmm. And you feel pretty strongly, like you might need to kind of refer out. Like, how do you go about having that conversation um, with the parents about that? So this has actually happened to me, I can, I'll think, I'll give you two different examples. So one from when I was first really starting out in pediatrics, and this kiddo came to me, they had a lot of sensory issues, they were already on a feeding tube, he only ate three foods by mouth and only drank pediatric. And I was like, okay, this is way out of my league. And, and that's one of those that, you know, initially I said, okay, you know, let me take a minute. And this is probably one of the only instances which, because normally I like to talk with my families about, you know, what our goals are going to be before they walk out the door from the evaluation. And I like to go over my concerns with them, what I'm seeing, what our goals are going to be for the future, all that kind of stuff. But I also want you guys to know, it's okay to say, you know what, I'm going to review this, I'm going to do some research, and then I will give you a call to go over everything with you and go over our goals. So, excuse me, that's what I did with this family. And when I called them, I just told the mom, I said, listen, I can, you know, I can see him and we can work on some oral motor strengthening. We can work on introducing some new foods, but I will be totally honest with you. The different things that I saw in the evaluation and the different things that you are telling me, I do not have a lot of experience treating and I don't want you to get stuck and feel like you're not making progress, nor do I want you to go in the opposite direction. And I would really, really feel more comfortable if you make this decision. So if you want to come to us, you're more than welcome. And we can, you know, we can start therapy and we can try different things. But if you want to talk with your pediatrician and look at other options, I will not be offended. And they actually ended up going to Marcus Autism Center. It's in Atlanta and they have an intensive feeding program. And then they came to us for follow-up therapy afterwards. Mm -hmm. So 
that was one of the first ones. Um, now, one of my more recent ones, because I will say, as you become more and more experienced with feeding and swallowing, you rarely get those kids that you that you're just like, oh, totally out of my wheelhouse, right? Like mm -hmm. there's gonna be something that you can do with them. Now, I still have kids that I will refer, you know, to a psychologist, but I'm still working with them. Um, so I'm not gonna totally just bow out. But it does get less and less the more experience that you get. But here, let's see, it was before I went on maternity leave. I think it was in like August or September. We got a referral and this mama was breastfeeding and she was just having the hardest time breastfeeding. The baby was screaming, crying all the time. We had arching back. We had tried for reflux medication. The baby was continuing to vomit. The baby had already seen GI, had seen the pediatrician, but lo and behold, had not been referred to a lactation consultant. Okay. <laughs> so that was one where I called the pediatrician where the referral came from and I just said, hey, I reviewed all of the documentation. I would be happy to do an evaluation. However, I think that we, you know, first off, we need to have this family see a lactation consult. And sure enough, that's where they went. And we never heard from them. So I'm assuming that everything is well, <laughs> but that was one that they didn't end up coming back to us. So sometimes it just is that good review of documentation to see and see if it's even, you know, do you even need them to come in for an evaluation first or do you need them to go and see someone else first? Mm -hmm. All right, excellent examples. Thank you, Caitlin. Yeah. All right, and how, how much longer until we get to the documentation side? Like the things that you wanted to mention about that? Oh yeah, we're jumping into that in just a second. Okay. Um, okay, so obviously then you have, we kind of touched on lactation consultants. So that is one where if you have a kiddo that is just, that is breastfeeding, even if they're bottle fed, sometimes you can see a lactation consultant. They can help with the bottle too if you're not super confident. They are like the nipple gurus from bottles to breast. So they can be extremely helpful for your breastfed babies. Your cardiologists, all right, so these are ones you're not really gonna work with them super often. But if you do have a child that has any kind of heart condition, you want to make sure that you have clearance from your cardiologist for them to participate in feeding and following therapy. We had a little one who the left side of her heart is about two sizes smaller than the right side of her heart. And so her oxygen levels couldn't get below, and what was it? Hers couldn't get below a 90. And if she, like, if she got, what was the other? If her heart rate got above a certain level, we had to stop. You know, all of these things that are very, very sensitive because of her heart condition. So again, that's why it's so important to know your specialist, know your kids, get that detailed case history, okay? And then your allergist. So I mainly work with my allergist with my kids that have EOE. Um, and then every once in a while, you'll, your milk, milk protein allergy kids, um, most of the time, I'm not the first to find the milk protein allergy. Usually that comes from the GI. Um, and a lot of times my kids end up growing out of it, which is great. But I also often refer to an allergist if we're just, if I'm concerned about EOE, um, they, you know, they'll see a GI and then we'll need to see an allergist. And then your ABA therapist. 
So this is another one that's kind of controversial. We have some really great ABA therapists in our area. We have some not so great ones. Um, I have some that reward with M&Ms. Not my favorites, okay? <laughs> but then I have others that they, they work really well with us. They call and ask us, you know, what are our goals? Um, because they know that they're getting therapy at our clinic as well. And so they want to make sure that they're not doing anything that's going to um, discredit what we're doing or send the child in the opposite direction. They want to kind of make sure that we're working on that same continuum. And that also goes for feeding and following therapy. Okay, so now we're going to jump over to the other side. You have your documentation. So I put this on the specialist list because a lot of times with your documentation, it's one that you, you'll get documentation before they come, but you also will get nothing. And then there are times where you're going to request these different procedures to be done um, and different pieces of documentation. So like I was telling you guys, we started our own feeding clinic um, at my location. And all of these are things that our receptionists will request if they've had done, they request copies of everything before they come into the clinic so that we as the therapists have time to review them. And then we can talk about them with the families and go over any questions because I can't tell you how many times I have families come in and they're like, well, they had a triple scope and I think they said everything was okay, but I'm not really sure. And I think they did some, some prolarin or some, well, they say Botox. They did some injection, some Botox injection somewhere in there. And I don't know. And you're just like, okay, great. <laughs> so that's, that's where your um, history from your family usually gets a little hairy. And it's really nice to have this documentation from the doctors, specialists, and from the other speech therapists. So at our clinic, we don't offer fees or modified variant and swallow studies. We have we have to send them to Children's Hospital for the modified. We don't have anyone in our area that does, that does fees. And honestly, I think that's still something that I'm real interested. If anyone has ever done a fees with a child or has seen one done or anything like that, I would love to talk with you about that because that's just real interesting to me. And I just wonder how they would actually participate. So anyway, so you're modified. Obviously, we all know what that is. That's going to tell you if they're aspirating. That's going to tell you how their structures are working, if there are any true structural deficits that can be seen. Um, and then, but big time, okay, are we safe to drink thin nectar, honey, pudding, fig? Are we safe on purees, soft, um, regular textures, all that kind of stuff? If not, what are we safe on? Um, and I kind of use this just as a guiding tool. So a modified variant swallow study is not the end all be all. And I have this, I have to have this conversation with my families a lot. Um, so for my kids, and I, I know for adults, you know, sometimes they're more compliant, sometimes they're not. Um, but generally they are more willing to participate in a swallow study, whereas your kids, well, they're hit and miss. But most of the time a swallow study is gonna last for the kid anywhere from one to four minutes. Okay, that's it. So that's like a snapshot in time. So for your kids that, you know, your parents are reporting, oh, well, they're coughing, choking, all this stuff. You know, they're constantly having upper respiratory infections. They go in, they pass a swallow study with flying colors. Okay, well, clearly something's wrong. Now, just because they didn't aspirate in that two minutes does not mean that they're not aspirating ever. Okay, so that's something too, I just like to stress 
to my colleagues is that, you know, it's a guiding tool. I like to use it to know just kind of what's going on, what's going on structurally, what's going on with the true swallowing process, because obviously we can't see that from the outside. And then from there, just again, use it as a tool, not as the end all be all Bible of how to run your treatment. Okay. Um, your upper endoscopy. So this is one that's going to tell you if we're dealing with true reflux or GERD. Um, this is where you're going to see if there's any kind of cobblestone effects. Um, you're going to see if there's the tracheomalacia, laryngomalacia, things like that. Now your triple scope, this is where you have the ENT, the GI, and the pulmonologist all go in and they do a laryngoscopy, endoscopy, and bronchoscopy. So obviously the laryngoscopy is done by your ENT, endoscopy is your GI, and bronchoscopy is your pulmonologist. Okay, and for the sake of time, if you guys want to know more about that, I just encourage you to look it up. <laughs> okay, but I will say a triple scope is becoming more and more common, um, especially with my kiddos that are part of the aerodigestive clinic. Almost all of those kids end up getting a triple scope because if they are seeing all three of those specialists for the sake of, you know, <clears throat> not having to put these children to sleep multiple times, they will, you know, if they know they need an upper upper endoscopy and they are kind of concerned about a bronchoscopy or pulmonology, they'll just go ahead and do the whole, the whole triple scope just so that that way it's all like you knock it out in one visit, okay? Um, obviously MRI, so this can be really good for our kiddos that have seizures, um, history of traumatic brain injury, history of a stroke, anything like that. Um, office visit notes, these are what I consider like gold, right? So this is from all of your specialists to just your pediatricians, your dietitians, everybody that that, that child sees. I want the most current office visit notes um, because that's where, just like you and I, when we write our daily notes, you're kind of painting that picture of what you did with that kiddo. You're talking about the concerns that the parent voiced you. You're talking about what the kid did and how they did it and how successful they were or weren't. Um, they're doing the same thing in their notes. So often I find that the notes are much more detailed than if I just get a referral, you know, or if they just send me over the triple scope results. If I also reflect the office visit notes with that, I get everything I could possibly have a question on, okay? Um, and then your height, weight, and growth charts. This is partially for insurance purposes, at least for us, um, but also just to kind of keep like a running idea of how they're progressing on that height, weight, and growth chart can be nice to look at. Um, for us, insurance requires it because if we are seeing a kid and they don't truly have a lot of swallowing dysfunction, um, if they're just, you know, at, if they're at risk, let's say they are at risk for weight loss and at risk for tube placement, okay, well, for whatever reason, insurance doesn't do that as reason enough for us to treat them. So if we supply that height, weight, and growth chart and they see that they're truly significantly below where they should be, they decide to give it to us. So just a, just a little tool for you guys. Okay, so this is our assessment. This is our hands-on approach, right? So your structural assessment, this is obviously a face, jaw, lips, tongue, hard and soft palate, oral pharynx, and oral mucosa. 
So <clears throat> we want to make sure that, you know, there's nothing funky going on with our dog. Does it jet out further than it should? We want to make sure it's in line. Okay. Um, we want to make sure that our lips, talking about protrusion, retraction, um, tongue, can they move it side to side? Can we move it up and down? Um, can they move it inside their pupil cavities? Are they able to scrape the roof of their mouth with it? How do they move a bolus, which we'll get into, but just the structural part of it. Um, the hard and soft palate, obviously you always want to look for a cleft palate. I would hope to finish, you would know before this, but you would be surprised. Um, sometimes you can find a submutic cleft, so that's something else to kind of be on the lookout for. And then also something that we see a lot of is a high palate. Sometimes that has absolutely no effect on their feeding and swallowing abilities. And other times it can be a huge factor. So just kind of something to look out for. Um, we want to look at their bite, their dentition. So obviously if they don't have any teeth yet, yeah, it's not going to be that important. I do like to note how many teeth they have, um, just because as you go along with this kiddo, that can play a part. But, you know, do they have an open bite? Do they have an overbite, an underbite, things like that. Okay, and then obviously, like we talked about, got to look in the back of the throat. So how are their tonsils looking? How is um, the uvula looking? Do they have, um, is it split? Is it like it should be? Do we have a tongue or a lip tie? Um, you know, and that's one where I have families that'll say, oh my gosh, you really just put it. And you can put your fingers in the mouth. And I'm like, well, we got to check. Like, you know, you can obviously close <laughs> always, <laughs> but you know, you always want to look for that tongue and lip tie. And again, that is one where no fault to my pediatrician. Sometimes the kiddos are, will not let them in their mouth and that is fine. Um, but I can't tell you how many times I have been the one, for some reason, I have been the one to find lip ties more often than anything else. And it's always right there at the front where they have that big gap where it comes down into those, where those two front teeth would be. And that's, I mean, that's one that y'all should definitely look it up if you're not very familiar with it. It is very important. And sometimes it has no, again, sometimes it has no effect on their feeding and swallowing abilities. And other times it can be extremely important. Okay. So your functional assessment, this is going to be of your muscles and structures used in swallowing. Um, so this is where you want to look at the sensation, the strength, the tone, range and rate of motion, coordination of movement. All right. So how's our tongue strength? How are we, um, how are our lips? Do we have good labial feel around the cup, around the spoon? Are we able to manipulate and manage a bolus in our mouth? Can we chew appropriately? our jaw working like it should be how is the tension and um yeah how's the tension and the tone in our cheeks are we super weak do we fatigue throughout a meal the rate of motion so that kind of goes with, with that fatigue is it taking them 20 minutes to chew one gummy you know things like that the sensation that kind of goes i love to use which we'll talk about tools here in a little bit i love to use the z vibe for that one the little vibrating tool they also, Talk Tools also has one called the Sensi. They're essentially the same thing, but they, that's a great way to know if your kid is going to be like hypersensitive um, to different sensations in their mouth, around their mouth. Obviously the next one, observation of posture and control. So this is one that I think 
a lot of times gets missed, if you will, especially in kids. But it's, I think, if anything, it's extreme. I mean, it's just as important as it is in adults. So you want to make sure you're getting that 90, 90, 90. So we talk about 90 here, and then we talk about that 90 seated position, right? And then our feet being like our, our knees being bent and down for that 90 position. So obviously the 90, 90, 90 is when you're in a seated position, okay? All right. And then just obviously, so that's another one with the posture. That's one where, you know, if we're, if we're in a high chair and they're like this, <laughs> okay, that's probably not the optimal swallowing position, right guys? Yeah, and when then, they're leaning over on their side. Yes, yes. And then we'll talk about this too when we get to some tools and um, different cups and things like that. But, you know, hard stop sipping cups, not a big fan. Why? Because they tilt their heads back like this. And we, as adults, tilt our heads back to drink from an open cup like that. But if any of you have a drink right now, take a sip real quick. And then notice how you bring your head back down the midline to swallow. Kids? Nope. They sure don't. They just won't, won't, won't like that. They don't, they don't think to come back down. Okay. We know what happens when you don't. <laughs> so, so all of those things with posture and control. Um, observation of eating, self-feeding, being fed. So this is one in my evaluations. Um, when I first started out, I was, you know, I was pretty much the only one doing the feeding. So I would be the only one offering the different stuff. Um, and then I realized real quick that that was not always the most effective, but also when you have the parent feed them, you see so much more, okay? So especially with your littles that are on like baby foods or purees, oh my goodness, and how fast these parents are shoveling this food in their mouth. It, it is insane. Um, I can't eat that fast and I don't have a swallowing problem. Um, so just kind of something, if you're not already doing that, I love to add that piece to my assessment of, okay, mom, well, I, you know, I'm going to kind of take a step back and I just want to see how you guys do things at home. So show me how you, you know, show me how you guys do a meal and just kind of let them go. Um, and oftentimes I'll do that before I do anything with the child in relation to feeding, because I want to see how the parent does it purely on their own, not off of anything that they've seen me do in the evaluation. Okay. Um, all right. And then also during that with the self-feeding, that will show you too, if you need to look at any kind of different utensils. Um, again, a lot of that falls into OT, but if it's a simple accommodation, we can do that too. That's not outside of our scope of practice. Then your assessment of swallowing abilities. So that's gonna be obviously your functional assessment. So this is where like in infants, the suckling, the sucking, um, that suck swallow breathe pattern, mastication in your older children. So do we have just an up-down munching pattern? Do we have a true up-down chew? Do we have a primitive rotary chew? Is it a solid like successful rotary chew? Um, are they able to keep all of the food in their mouth? Are they losing it on both sides or in the front, that anterior loss? Overall manipulation and transfer. Do we have that lingual pumping, that lingual thrusting? Um, which as we know, when you're first starting out with baby foods, totally normal, right? Because their little tongues have only moved in that little suckling position where it's kind of raised on the sides. 
for so long. And then now we're asking them to move their tongues up and back for that food presentation. So it takes some time for them to learn that. But if they've been doing purees for three months and we're still getting that lingual pumping, that lingual thrusting, that's not, that's not what we want to be treating. Um, so this is one, I believe, is it Cynthia? Is that right? I'm sorry. Yes, Cynthia. Sorry, we emailed and she has um, a, a little one that has been seeing her for a while. And this little kiddo is doing great as far as um, solids go. And but we are seeing some lingual thrusting and we're having a lot of difficulty with drinking from a straw. Um, so I did share with her um, one of Melanie Kotok's straw drinking protocols, which I will also email that to you, Cynthia. I did not forget about that. Um, that is one that I, I don't think it's available on her um, free toolbox, but that is one I do have access to it because I've attended one of her courses, but it is, it's fantastic. So it goes over how to get your little ones to start drinking from a straw. So putting a little bit of puree in the bottom of a baby food jar, a black baby food jar, and then dipping um, a small diameter silicone straw in the puree and then turning it back over. So they get that taste around their mouth in their mouth and then they will obviously eventually start sucking through the straw you start thinning down the puree to where you get to that thin liquid so that's an alternative to the honey bear cup which we'll also talk about a little bit later but cynthia in regards to the lingual pumping and the tongue thrusting that is one so i have been successful with a few different options one of the first things that i always do with my purees is obviously thicken them up a little bit it makes it just easier for them to manipulate and learn how to manage. Another one that has been 50-50, it depends on the kiddo, is just having keeping that spoon there and doing continuous presentations. So when they push it, and this sounds kind of gross, but in reality, it's not that nasty. We've seen a lot worse. But when they push it out, having that spoon right there and not pulling away, but then just having them open their mouth, go right back into the mouth, have them close around it, pull the spoon out, have that spoon right back there to catch any of it. And then sometimes too, just having that tactile cue, whether you wanna use the spoon or a tongue depressor, I find that the easiest to use the spoon because that's what's already right next to their mouth, um, but just kind of pushing against it so that they know, ooh, it kind of cues them, ooh, tongue back, tongue back. It also depends on the cognitive level too. Um, but it's a lot of trial and error, and sometimes it just takes certain kids longer. Um, but yes, okay. So next you have your assessment of your behavioral factors. So <laughs> this is one that, whew, huge range here, guys, okay? So this is where, okay, do they accept the pacifier, the nipple, the spoon, the cup? Um, are they really hypersensitive to different textures and consistencies? Are they refusing food? Can they even sit in a high chair? Can they come to the table? Um, I have had kids where they won't even come and sit down at the table. Their behaviors are that bad. Um, and a lot of it has been because they've had traumatic experiences. Other times, not. Um, but those are just kind of things to, to definitely look at. And all of those things are extremely important. Um, so I just want to go over to that one, all those things that we talked about. Um, when we first talked about that pediatric feeding history and clinical assessment template that ACTA has, this is a lot of this stuff is on there too. 
Um, so it has <clears throat> where you can go into detail about the different foods that you try in a session with the family, who it was fed, who it was fed by, how they did with it, were there any strategies that you used to make sure that they were, you know, that they were able to do them appropriately, whether they were successful or not successful, um, your liquids that were trialed, and um, just your overall impression. Okay. All right. Okay, so this is one we talked to, I had this on last week and we didn't have time to get to it. So I'm gonna kind of breeze through this, but just some things to look out for, right? So between our infants, toddlers and older kids, because obviously you're not gonna worry about a bottle and a breast in a kiddo that is really like 24 months and up. If they're still on a bottle, you should probably start there with getting off the bottle. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> just some things to you know be able to differentiate what you're gonna kind of be seeing when you have a kiddo that comes in between these age ranges, this is what you're mostly going to see, right? So your infants between zero to 12 months, you're gonna see, okay, they're having issues with bottles and breastfeeding. Um, they're having issues transitioning to solids, um, whether it be they take stage one and stage two baby foods just fine, but they can't do anything with the texture, or they're having trouble getting on solids altogether, or they're having difficulty with chewing, um, that leads into that oral motor component. So we're having difficulty with chewing, we're getting tired during a meal, they're having trouble manipulating the bolus, we've got the anterior loss, things like that. Weight loss, failure to thrive, that's one you'll see across the board, okay? Um, that is one that it does not matter about the age. I get that diagnosis on, it, like I said, does not matter about the age. Um, so that's one where the weight loss could be one where they were typically typically developing for a while and then all of a sudden we started to fall off. Um, it could be one where um, they were they were hitting their mark and then um, it was kind of that slow decline, slow and steady decline. Um, and then obviously your failure to thrive, those are ones where they are consistently below that 3% to be diagnosed that failure to thrive, okay? Um, and then you go into your toddlers, your 12 months to 36 months. That's going to be where I talk about the food continuum, which we'll talk about here later. Um, that's one where we're having a lot of trouble transitioning to the next step in the food continuum, right? Or we're missing multiple steps and we're still stuck back on, you know, soft table matchables and we're three years old. Um, oral motor, still a component for sure. So you can see issues with the same kind of things that we we're talking about with the oral motor. Um, behaviors start to become a big factor here and they can pop up in infancy. It's just more common after that 12 month mark that you'll start seeing those negative behaviors because they've had time to try food and to develop those behaviors. And that can be something as simple as they're throwing food to they won't come to the table. You have your grazers. Um, you've got, again, you've got your kiddos that are they've got true ARFID or they have anxiety based around food, all sorts of different things. And then your three and above generally see behaviors, weight loss, and failure to thrive. Okay. And again, all of this will be available for y'all after that you can access it. Okay, now we're gonna jump into treatment. And this is one where we have a question, Mimi. I I believe the question is up now and it's I feel confident in my ability to treat pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders, true or false? So you're just kind of answering yes or no, how you feel confident in that. Okay, I think we have everyone voted. So I'm gonna end the poll and share the results.
And we have 38% uh, saying that they do feel confident in their ability to treat pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders with 63% saying they don't feel confident. Okay. Okay. So for those of you that said true, awesome. Fantastic. I'm glad you're here. For those of you that said false, I'm also glad you're here. Um, so I really think for those of you that said false, I just want to let you guys know this section is like the lightest breeze through of treatment possible. But if you guys, just like um, Ms. Cynthia did with me, I will give you guys my email at the end of this presentation. And if you have somebody that you want to reach out about, um, if you have a kid that you just would love to collaborate on, I am happy to do that with you. And honestly, that's where my passion lies, is that collaboration piece with fellow colleagues. And so again, for those of you that don't feel super confident, those assessment templates and the other um, feeding screener that I'm going to share with you guys. So one is from ASHA, and then the other one is called Feed the Feed. I don't know if you guys have heard of her. It's Hallie Bolting. Um, she is a great, a great person. And then also on my reference list, you'll see me reference um, the SOS method and Melanie Potok. Melanie Potok is like gold for me. I love her. Uh, I have taken an in-person course of hers but she is one that she has a lot of really great free toolbox options um, and a couple different things which we'll talk about that of hers that I use on a regular basis but then I'll also talk about the SOS method which is uh, Miss Toomey and she is also fantastic that is one of the next things that's on my list to do um, Beckman oral motor that's also on the list so there's all sorts of really fun wonderful things that you guys can do um, to learn more and feel more confident in that treatment. But like I said, I would love to collaborate with you if you guys ever have any questions. So your treatment options, and this is this is not a, you know, again, end all be all list. This is just to kind of go over the different stuff that are typical treatment options that we use. So your feeding position, postural position, just kind of we talked about that 90-90-90. Um, this is one where if you have a if you have a kiddo that <clears throat> really from mainly in your toddlers where you want to focus a lot on that 90 90 90 position so oftentimes and just pay attention to this the next time you have a kid in the high chair but if their feet are dangling that is not optimal position you want their feet to be resting on that little footrest and if they can't reach build it up so like we have these really great foam blocks that our physical therapists were using for all sorts of things. And so my, we had our boss order us more that we could use in the feeding clinic. And for our littles that their feet can't reach, we put it under there. Um, you can also use towels if you don't have those different blocks. You can get creative. Before we had those, I have used a cardboard box. So it does not matter. And same with at home, because obviously if you're using something for postural training at the clinic, nine times out of 10, you're gonna need it for home too. And a lot, I don't know about where you guys are stationed or where you guys work, but for us, a lot of our families don't have the monetary needs to go out and buy a lot of different tools and um, aids for things like that. So we get creative on what we can do that's gonna be really cost effective and um, a cheaper option, okay? And then something else too that we use a lot of are just like rolled up towels for that postural support on the side. So you'll see that in your kiddos that like we were talking about earlier, where they kind of slump to the side, you can put a little towel rolled up next to them, give them that extra support. Yeah, Nia. Um, so 
we've got um, a question that they've heard about that before that the feet should be resting rather than dangling. Can you do, like, what's the reasoning behind that? Why is it so important that their feet aren't dangling? Like why must, we know we need 90, you know, at the chin throw, like we're very clear on that. We understand why 90 there. Right. And then the other 90 is at your hips. So your mm -hmm. torso to your legs are at 90 degrees. And then your knees need to be right. at the 90 degrees so that your feet are flat on a surface. And so, of course, if their children are in a chair, they need to be able to rest their feet on something. Why is it so important that they don't dangle? So that's one that, you know, in adults, not so much. But one of, so one of the spots that I actually really learned about a really great way to talk about this was at Melanie Protoxon's course. Um, so I had heard about this before. I kind of thought the same thing. Why is it so important? Um, and she gave us a really good visual example. So she had a stool and, you know, on a stool, you can't really get that optimal 90, 90, 90, especially with the knees. It's kind of like you're like one leg propped up a little bit higher and the other might be dangling just completely down. Um, and then, so she had you kind of drink from there in that slouch position and drink and just to see, you know, how it all worked. And then she had her her feet up to where it was at that 90 she sat up straight had all again the 90 90 90 and where we didn't see any of the anterior loss and also some of it for kids too is a distraction okay so if their legs are down um and they're they're not resting right there a lot of it can be oh they start picking um so some of it can be an avoidance where they're just picking their feet against it um but also Think about how you're sitting right now. Like me personally, I'm sitting with my legs crossed, like my, my ankles are crossed. So naturally I'm kind of leaning on one hip more so than others. So even though you think that, okay, well, I'm at a 90, 90, 90, well, you're still favoring a certain side. And so you're kind of, you kind of have that slouch, even though you don't, you don't necessarily feel it. So really, it's just that, it's really just that optimal position. And it starts with the feet and kind of goes up. Hmm. I wonder if it's something about kind of having like, it, it aids in the stability and like a grounding measure too. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm curious and kind of digging in deeper for that and kind of unpacking it. But I, yeah. I think often we really isolate like swallowing and feeding and thinking that it really just happens like right here when it's like, a full body experience. And we really take that for granted. Absolutely. Um, okay, so obviously with your infants, you're gonna have possibly sideline position or your reclined feeding, and that is okay. Um, so when they're feeding from the bottle, now sometimes you are gonna have to change their positioning. Um, if they are having a lot of difficulty drinking in that sideline position, you may want them more in the seated position. So just some things to be thinking about. Okay, so obviously we have our diet modification. So if you're familiar with any kind of swallowing dysfunction, you know that we have our thickeners, right? So then we also have just decreasing our levels of different foods. Um, so it is different from the nursing home. We don't, in pediatrics, we don't talk about puree, mechanical, soft, and regular. <laughs> so you have your different food, like your food continuum, which like I, like I said, we'll talk about here in just a few minutes where you kind of move through that progression of different foods. One of the things that you can do with that diet modification though, that's a little bit different. Now, I think, you know, you still use it in the nursing home, but it's just not talked about as much, but 
cutting up into smaller pieces. That's something that a lot of people obviously naturally do for children, but sometimes you have to do it a little bit longer. Um, I have a four-year-old right now. She can't tolerate whole pieces of food. We still are having to cut them into pieces because she's our little conveyor belt where she's our overstuffer, and she will just sit there and num, 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 num until her mouth is completely full and she looks like chubby bunnies, and then she has to spit it out. And so she's working so hard, but then she can't actually eat it. So we're, it's totally defeating the purpose. She's getting tired and then we're not actually getting any nutrition in her. So we're still cutting it up. Now we're working on bite sizes. Um, so we started with what we talked, like what we would consider a kidney bean size bite. We moved up to a nickel, up to a quarter. And that's what we're at right now is a quarter size bite. And that's what we're able to do. She's able to safely tolerate it. No pocketing, no overstuffing. Um, and it's working. So again, it's it's about that bite size progression too. Okay, using easier foods for kids that have difficulty with certain textures to reduce that fatigue. So kind of like what we just talked about. But even so, I have um, a little girl that is eight with um, history of hydrocephalus and just overall low muscle tone in the body. And so she is one that this little one she can't make it through a meal. Um, without getting so tired that she'll just stop. So she is, she has steadily been underweight her entire life. Um, and so we've been working a lot on oral motor strengthening, um, just working up on that endurance. But then we also talk a lot about the importance of, you know, we're not going to do the hardest foods at dinner time. So I'm not going to offer her steak bites at dinner because she's already had breakfast, two snacks, and lunch and then this little girl loves to talk and so all of those muscles are super fatigued come dinner time so she's not able to do really complex things so that's when we talk about you know what it's okay to let her have macaroni and cheese and peas for dinner um and you know it may sound not so great to us but if that means that she finishes a meal and she gets that nutrition aspect of it, then that's all that matters. Um, and then we can try those more difficult foods earlier in the day. And eventually, obviously, we will work up to her being able to tolerate them at all times of the day. But for right now, that's one of the diet modifications that we have for her. And it's appropriate. Yeah. And when you talk about doing more difficult foods, you're, you're talking about like those more complex textures. So the yeah. textures that take a lot more chewing and processing that she would fatigue on, yeah. you're doing those earlier in the day and then softer, easier textures. Yeah. Would you ever recommend like altering protein for evening meals to like a ground mixture or like even something like a puree? Or would you so, just say like do that at the beginning of the day? Yeah, no, um, we have we have done that before. This is this girl, little girl actually. She um, one of her favorite proteins is peanut butter. So there are some days where in the evenings she will literally sit down and eat a spoonful of peanut butter. And I I told her grandma I was like you know what that's okay if that's what works for her then that is what works because you know doing a peanut butter sandwich is too difficult. But just having that peanut butter where she can just lick kind of at her own pace and it's just, it's a little bit easier and she knows to do the liquid wash to help clear everything. Um, sometimes if she's feeling extra special, she'll get two spoonfuls of peanut butter. Um, but that is one 
she she can tolerate a ground meat a little bit better. So, but that was that was another thing too. And this is something that's important for all of y'all to kind of keep in mind too with your families is it, it depends on the child as far as okay, are we gonna make a different meal option for them or are they gonna eat whatever we're having? Um, so a lot of times we preach to our families, don't make something different, you know, just modify it as you need to. But there are those certain circumstances where it's just not really an option. So for her, it's about that nutritional piece. Um, so if they're having tacos or something like that for dinner, she can tolerate that ground beef in the top with the taco meat. Um, and a lot of times they'll just do soft tortillas for her and she can tolerate that or she won't even do tortillas. She just does like basically a taco salad without the, the crunch. <laughs> but she can also do some like really finely shredded chicken. That's one that's easier for her to chew up and swallow. But in their family, something that's very common for them to eat are um, Egg bites, shrimp, and uh, fried chicken. So, all things that require a little bit more chewing. So that's when we're, if you know, with the, with the chicken, they can generally cut it up enough to where she can tolerate it. But the shrimp and the steak bites are a little bit harder. Yeah. All right. So this is your roughly thirty-minute like time warning. Cause I know, I know you've got some case studies you want to do. So I want you no. to know. Oh yeah. Hey. And this is like, this is the good stuff. Okay. So let's, let's keep going. So we did talk about the thickening the baby foods for the lingual thrusting. So I'm not even going to jump into that. We already talked about that. Okay. So different equipment and tools we'll talk about on another slide. Strategies that you may use would be pacing. So obviously this is one that's huge with your kids because as soon as they realize they like something, they want to shovel it all into their mouth. Um, so pacing in terms of drinks, you know, okay, you just pull the sippy cup away, that kind of pacing. Pacing in terms of food, you only put one to two pieces in front of them at a time, that kind of thing. You still, I do use an effortful swallow with a lot of kids. Liquid wash, so that's super common in your kiddos that have any kind of oral stasis. Okay, let's get a drink. Bite, sip, bite strategy. That's a really common one. And then in your littles, instead of the bite, sit, bite, you'll do a bite and an empty spoon and then another bite. And that can help them clear anything that might still be in there after they swallow. Your oral motor exercises. So that's one where a lot of times we use our nook brush, our Z-Vibe. You're gonna work on some lingual strengthening and coordination exercises. That's where your tongue depressors can be your best friends. Um, using a straw to have like a racing game, throwing a piece of paper across the table, all that kind of stuff, working on fusel tension, labial seals. Then you also have in your sensory stimulation, you've got your thermal and tactile stimulation. Um, so that's that sensory play. This also kind of falls into the SOS method. So if you're not familiar with the SOS method, it is a hierarchy that starts with essentially them being comfortable with the food, building up to touching the food, picking them up, bringing them to their mouth, um, kissing them, licking them, biting them, putting them in their mouth and actually chewing, and then obviously the act of swallowing. There are many other steps in between. If you're interested in all of that, I encourage you to look it up. And then you have your behavioral techniques. So this is one where you're gonna work with shaping, prompting, modeling, your stimulus baiting, differential reinforcement, um, so this is one where we can, you know, we can basically shape them into the little humans that we want them to be. 
um, we might have lots of behaviors to get rid of first, but there are ways to get there. Um, ignoring is one of your best friends. So when they're throwing that food on the floor, don't acknowledge it, don't say no, let them throw it on the floor. And then at the end of the treatment session, you guys sit down and you all clean it up, okay? Um, same with utensils. If they're throwing utensils on the floor, you have three spoons. We kind of do a rule of three. When you throw that third one, okay, you can use your fingers. Like that's your option. And then at the end of the meal, they get down, they pick them up, they put them away. So they're still in that habit of, oh, okay, maybe I shouldn't throw this because I'm going to have to pick it up. Um, and that's just an example. Um, another one, you know, with as far as like your differential reinforcement, your modeling. So obviously you're modeling. Oh, let's try it, you know, and be fun with it too. That's the thing. If you just pick up a piece of broccoli, which broccoli is a terrible example, let's do, let's say you pick up a piece of banana. Okay. So you pick up your little piece of banana. Oh, let's take a bite. The chances of them taking a bite is slim, right? Now, if you get silly with it, you talk about how slippery it is and talking about the different textures of it and like, let's smell it, let's stick it on our face, you know, and see if it'll stick. Like, again, it might sound gross, but it works. The more fun you are with this stuff, the more likely these kids are to try it and to do the different things that you're doing. Whereas if you just stick it in your mouth and you're like, oh, let's take a bite. I also pass this to my parents and this is one that just I hope sticks with you, but I kind of picked up on this really in my nursing home days, but it's so, it's still so, so true with your, with your kids. So, you know, we oftentimes we get a spoonful or a forkful of something. We're like, here, take a bite. And you put it up to their mouth, but they have no idea what it is. They don't know what it, they don't know what it tastes like. They don't know what it smells like. They don't know what it is. They don't know the texture of it, consistency, nothing. So you, as an adult, are you going to take a bite that somebody just puts up to your mouth? that you don't know anything about? Are you just going to open your mouth and eat it? Probably not. Even if it comes from a safe person, like even if it comes from your mom, okay? You're probably going to say, no, what is that? You're going to ask, you're going to question it. So kids have a right to do the same thing and we have to remember that, okay? Okay, sorry, real quick. Can you reiterate a little bit about the treatment considerations that you were talking about, uh, specifically about biting? I think it was like when you were like alternating bites or something like that. Like um, the bite that bite or the bite and the dry spoon? I think so. Okay. So the bite sit bite is obviously not like if they take one tiny bite, then you're going to offer a sip. <clears throat> it's more so if they take a bite of something, they chew it up, they swallow it. Sometimes they may or may not have oral stasis. It also kind of depends on the consistency. So I do the bite sit bite method with a lot of kids, even if they don't have issues with that certain texture um, or pocketing. A lot of times I'll do it just to clear the oral cavity in you know like its entirety. The bite and then the empty spoon and the bite. So that's when you use more with your littles. And again, that is just truly to clear that oral cavity and kind of it kind of resets everything. Um, but I find that that is one I use a lot with my kiddos with um, CP. So that is, they just have overall difficulty managing the bullet in their oral cavity. And so offering that dry spoon to just kind of like, it's almost like it hits that reset button before they're ready for the next break. All right, so I'm not gonna go super deep into the behavioral technique. Um, 
that's another one between I, I, I like to use a mix of SOS and behavioral techniques. Um, and based on the literature, those are really where your, your best results are. So if you use purely the SOS, you are going to see results eventually, but it is very, it's, it's kid driven where they are the guiding factor. They're the driving factor. So you could be stuck at that kissing level forever. If you, if you solely do the SOS method and you do nothing else, you could be stuck at that, that kissing level for a really, really long time. Um, and a lot of times, your kiddos that are appropriate for an SOS method, they also have some behaviors. So it's not inappropriate to also use behavioral techniques with those kids. Um, just like we do with speech and language therapy, you're not gonna, you're not gonna continue to do something that is not suggested. You're not gonna just keep doing it session after session after session. You're gonna make modifications and you're gonna add things in and take other pieces away. Same thing goes for feeding and swallowing. Okay. Um, so if one thing isn't working, you know, try it again. But if it continues not working, it's not being successful, try something else. Um, but based off of the literature, based off of my experience, based off different courses that I've taken, a mixture of that SOS, like kid driven, and then also behavioral techniques seem to be the best option, the best approach. Okay. Okay. And there are some other really great behavioral techniques I would love to talk about, but maybe that's just another course we'll have to do on another day again. <laughs> so my last one there is the NMES or Vital Stem. Um, so this is another one that can be a really good option. Um, I am Vital Stem certified. I do use it with some kids. It's not something I use incredibly often. Um, I use it a lot more with adults than I do with kids. But there are, there are some kiddos that it is very, very appropriate for. I had a little one that suffered a stroke during birth and she had left-sided facial weakness. So we did vital stem with her and now she has perfect little symmetry and the cutest smile. Um, so it can still be appropriate. It just depends what you're using it for and obviously still follow those contraindications and precautions, okay? Okay, touch sports and tools on my. So we'll kind of just touch on these if you guys, again, if you guys have any questions, you'll have my email at the end of this. I'm happy to collaborate, happy to answer any questions you might have. So this one, I'm just going to go across the top. So this one right here is our Z-Vibe. This is the one that I said also Top Tools has one called the Sensi. Um, so it has different attachments that go up top. That's just that standard one. But they come with all different little tactile pieces that you can use. And <clears throat> as far as the, the different textures go, I haven't really found a reason for a lot of the different ones as far as like changing them up. Every once in a while I'll have a kid that is accepting of one that is not of another, but usually it's not really a big deal either way. But that's that vibrating tool that you can use for oral motor exercises and then just that overall sensory tactile stimulation, okay? The Nook Brush, this is one that um, you can use if they don't have a Z-Vibe, can't afford a Z-Vibe. This is one, it's much more affordable tool. It doesn't vibrate. Another good option to a Z-Vibe is just a vibrating toothbrush. Still not the same thing because it doesn't have all the attachments, but it does offer them that vibrating. And if you have a kiddo that doesn't like to brush their teeth, having that vibrating teeth, if they're used to the Z-Vibe and it's just the Z-Vibe, you'd be amazed how often they'll brush their teeth. So then with the next brush, the nice thing about this is it does have this little texture, these texture pieces on it. 
that offers that tactile stimulation, that sensory stimulation. But this is one that we'll also work, we'll use to work on with chewing. So you can dip it in pretty much anything to give them that little bit of flavor, that little bit of taste. And then they have something in their mouth they're chewing on. You let them kind of work on that overall bolus manipulation side of things that they swallow. So these are just some adaptive utensils. I just put pictures of two of my favorite ones that we use all the time. So these are little bendable utensils. Okay, so this can be really good for your kiddos with CP, with contractures or um, hypersomia. Um, it can also be really good for those with hyposomia. If, if I'm dealing with that, more so I step back and talk to my occupational therapist, but these are really good that you can use if you notice that a kid is kind of having just issues, you know, scooping or turning or their wrist is kind of turning out, give them one of these and see if it makes a difference. These little guys are great for when you're first starting out. So for your littles, because they all they have that real tight grasp and it's really hard for them to manipulate a true corn, uh, fork or spoon at this, that early point, even doing these little guys. And these next ones over here, those are like, these are gold to me. Um, so that's called a nubby feeder. And you've probably seen the ones with the netting at like Walmart and places like that. The silicone ones, I have never seen them in store. I've always ordered them off Amazon, but you can put pretty much anything in here. Again, that's working on chewing, moving it side to side, being able to manage that liquid that's coming out of there. Um, but it's also a safe option to practice chewing because they don't have a whole piece of something in their mouth. It's safe in that nubby feeder. Now, obviously, you're still going to get some of it that's going to turn out those little holes. That's okay. We want them to do that. So make sure that whatever you're putting in there is going to be safe for that child that you're using it with. One of my favorite things to use is frozen fruit. So it, it's giving that thermal and tactile stimulation all at the same time. But then you're also working on the chewing. And it takes a lot longer to chew up frozen fruit than it takes to chew up anything else. So it lasts a little bit longer before you have to switch it out. Um, okay, down to these cups. I just kind of showed you again my favorites. This is these are not like you have to use kind of things. This is just my favorite cups that I've used so far. So this is my favorite transitional cup. Um, when we're transitioning from a bottle to a sippy cup, you kind of want to start with that soft spout. If they go straight to a straw, fantastic. That is awesome. Um, but a lot of times they aren't able to do that. So this first little one. Um, this offers a really small touch in that nipple right there, and it mimics that soft that soft tip that you would get with a bottle. Uh, and then the handles are obviously a nice piece because they can hold it themselves and tip it back. Um, your straw cup, this is gonna be your your best one, your best option for sure. Um, it it promotes that chin tuck position, and versus like we were talking about the hard spout where they keep their head back. Um, that's the other thing with this little guy, the transitional cup here, they generally don't have to tilt it all the way back to get that liquid to come out. So these have the weighted straws on them too. I'm, I'm hitting this with the weighted straws because they can still get that liquid out if they tip it up. That's the difference in the weighted straws. So um, your honey bear cup, that's gonna be your straw trainer cup. So as soon as a kiddo can drink from this, you need to transition them off the honey bear cup and get them on a regular straw cup, okay? That's purely for a teaching method. Um, I have one kid that the mom bought one of these and she had him on it for like six months and he was steadily just drinking out of it. <laughs> so that's not what it's 
Um, but it is a great tool. And then like we talked about the other um, straw drinking techniques with the baby food jar. Um, and I can also share that with you guys. Um, so these little cups are just some great cups to practice open cup drinking. They mimic like um, an adult size tumbler, but it's in kid size. So it's got that small little opening there. So it just controls the amount that they're getting versus like a true open cup. And it also reduces your spill rate, okay? So they're not gonna be wearing their entire cup of juice or water, okay? All right, thickeners. So we won't go, we won't go into super detail about this, but I just wanna touch on a few things um, because this is something I ran into about a year ago where um, I had somebody recommend uh, thick and easy to a patient that was 14 months. Um, so the biggest thing I want to talk to y'all about with thickeners is just the ages. Okay. So these are the different thickeners that are on the market. Um, rice cereal, oatmeal, and gel mix are the only three that you can use for children under 12 months of age. Okay. Your oatmeal and your rice cereal, most common, most cost-effective. Gel mix is when they start transitioning to like juice and water, because obviously you're not going to put rice cereal and oatmeal into juice and water. So those are for your milk and formulas, okay? Um, your gel mix though, <clears throat> it's also one that's a nice option if they don't like the thicket, that gritty texture. Um, I usually will tell my families to start with the thicket, try that first, because again, cost-effective. Um, for us, that's what WIC provides, and so that's their their option. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with WIC, but it's just a program through our de Department of Health that provides um, food and drinks and then things like this, the, the thickeners and stuff like that for um, women and their children under age three. Um, okay, or ours is under age five. Anyway, so with your thicket, that is good to be used after one year of age. And then same with your Simply Fit and your Pure Fit. So that Thick and Easy is the only one that is recommended only after three years of age. I still haven't dug super deep into why. Um, I know with the Thicket, Simply Fit and Pure Fit, they recommend after 12 months because of um, the xanthan gum that's in them. They don't recommend that for less than 12 months of age, but I haven't figured out yet why the thick and easy is the three-year mark. But just kind of a good rule of thumb, and if you see that recommended for one of your patients that's younger than three three years, switch them, get them on something else. Um, because again, if we know and we can switch it, then we're, you know, we're being helpful. Okay, so this is our food continuum. If you guys, so for the sake of time, I'm not gonna go into super detail on all of these. Most of you, if you work with kiddos with feeding and swallowing difficulties, you probably know about these, um, what the different ones are. Um, if you guys would like cl clarification and the classifications of these different things, like the hard lunchables and the multiple hard solids, I do have um, another chart with that, and I can share that with you guys if you would like. So the biggest thing I want to talk about with the food continuum is really stressing that where you see over here where it talks about the age of introduction, that does not mean that, okay, right at 11 months, we should be on soft mechanical food. Why are we still back on, you know, stage two puree? Well, because A, B, and C, 
you know, so it's one, and a lot of my parents will get hung up on this because of, you know, the CDC guidelines and what they should be doing at that age. And it's like, okay, well, just like they should be speaking in three to four word sentences, we're not quite there yet. Um, and explaining that. But then also, this can be a really good tool and reference tool for your families that, um, <coughs> sorry guys, when they do have a swallowing difficulty and other family members aren't really abiding by their diet modifications, this can be something that can be really good for them to show them, okay, this is what they can't eat, this is what we're not ready for yet. Um, so they kind of have that reference tool. And then also, it's a really good reference tool for our families and our parents that even are on board, just because sometimes they don't know what they should give them or what they can give them or what would be considered safe or not safe. Um, and then from, from this, I've made kind of my own different definitions and ideas that I share a lot with my families as far as different things to try of the different consistencies. Um, and that's one just as you get more comfortable, y'all will probably do the same thing. So, your collaboration with your other professionals. We talked a lot about this earlier. Um, so, I'm not, I don't feel like we really need to go back over this. Like I said, we discussed a lot of this. Um, so, let's go into our case studies. So, these were ones, if you guys were with us last week, they're the same case studies, but we have different questions this time. Um, if you weren't with us last week, then Welcome to case study number one. All right, so in case study number one, Tyler is a one year, six month old male who was referred to ST services by his GI doctor due to concerns of weight loss. He has a history of oropharyngeal dysphagia, laryngomalacia, tracheomalacia, and stage two laryngeal cleft. His mother and father report that he is currently on nectar thickened level two consistency liquids and that he will drink it but that he has started stealing their drinks or getting his older sister's cup of thin liquids. They report that he will cough anytime he does this. His parents also state that he has trouble with any foods that have to be chewed, will choke or gag with certain textures and has refused to eat at least one meal a day. He had a follow-up swallow study two weeks ago, which revealed tracheal aspiration of thin liquids, decreased bolus manipulation and formation, decreased laryngeal elevation, penetration of a bite of cookie, and incoordination of laryngeal closure. He had a triple scope three months ago, at which time they found the laryngeal cleft, tracheomalacia, and laryngomalacia, and used a prolarin injection, prolarin injection. His GI doctor has expressed to the parents that if he does not gain weight before the next appointment in three months, then they will have to place a G-tube. So the first question that we want y'all to kind of mull over and provide your responses in the chat box or in the Q&A box, which you can give your answers anonymously in the Q&A box if you like, is what would you assess during the evaluation? So Caitlin, is this like, what are they going to like trials they would present or? Yeah, so based off of what all, so assume that all of this is that case history that your parent, that parent just told you all of this. So what are some things that you guys are going to want to look at um, as far as foods and liquids go and how might you present them? 
Mm, okay. All right. So I'll give you all a minute or two to kind of process that and type in your answers, and then I'll share them as you type them in. I know for me, like, I don't work in pediatrics anymore, but at the beginning of my career, I did do some feeding and swallowing treatments. But based on like what I know now of working in dysphagia um, and just how I, how I practice, I would be interested in, in presenting different, different ways of presenting thin liquids as well. Like I would look at that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't avoid it. It would be part of my assessment. Okay. Like, yeah, I would want to know like positioning. Is it a positioning issue with the thin liquids? Is it a quantity issue? Is it a delivery method issue? Right, exactly. Well, and that's the thing. So, you know, kind of where we talked about how it's so, like all those different pieces of the assessment are so important because if you, you know, if you look at just this information, well, we really don't know what he, what kind of cup he's drinking out of, how fast he's drinking it, you know, um, what kind of liquid is he drinking? Is this like a thicker, is it like whole milk or is it water, <laughs> you know? So yeah, definitely different things to look at. And like you said, the posture, how are we drinking it? Are we like running around like a crazy person and taking subs or are we sitting at the table? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and so some of our responses from our participants is that they would want to watch the parents feed him to see like what's, what's the natural way that they're proceeding about this at home. And then they would observe like what textures he does well with and which he struggles with. Another entry is that, so yeah, they would do trial feedings and find the ones that he would tolerate and do various consistencies there. And they would uh, be interested with looking at the interfering behaviors, if that's a contributing factor to his intolerance. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. That's a huge one with any of your kiddos that are refusing certain textures. I don't want you to shy away from offering those during the evaluation. If anything, you want to offer those because you want to see what kind of behaviors they're presenting with. Um, so most of the time your parents are going to tell you, oh, well, they scream, they turn their head away, they throw it on the floor. And almost always when they come in for an evaluation, they won't do any of those things or they'll do like something totally opposite. And my parents are always like, you're making a lie out of me. And it's like, no, it's okay. This happens all the time. <laughs> so. It's good to, that's just something to note in your evaluation when you're doing your write-up, is just talking about what the parent has told you versus what you saw in your evaluation. Um, because sometimes they are two different things. And then, but when they come in for treatment, then they start showing you those lovely things that they do for mom and dad at home all the time, alongside what they did for you in the evaluation. Mm -hmm. And so another thing that we're, looking for, okay, wait, I had two more entries just pop up. All right, so somebody would look at the coordination and manipulation of bolus ability or problems, and then they would want to know about sensory issues, aversions of tastes and smells. And uh, another person would want to see how they do with the thick purees, they'd be really interested with that. And they would do um, an oral structure and function assessment, uh, since that's where a lot of the issues seem to be taking place. All right, so now we're gonna to go to our next question. Based on Tyler's case study, um, what tests would you want to request, if any? So that's our question for our lovely participants. Would you order some tests? What would they be? Or no test? Yep, so he's wondering, 
remember he had a follow-up swallow uh, study two weeks ago and then a triple scope three months ago. Yeah, I think with that swallow study two weeks ago, I think that's recent enough unless there have been significant changes in those two weeks. I think yeah. that that still holds true. That was kind of like a trick question. <laughs> Just to throw y'all, make sure you're still awake at, I don't know what time of day it is for y'all, but it's almost 10 o'clock for me. So. <laughs> yeah. One participant suggested maybe an OT consult. Yep, very good. That was the only thing I had was an OT consult for me, simply because of that refusal and the gagging and choking choking with certain textures um, and then the starting to refuse refusing to eat um, so that's when as soon as I start to see that and we have some texture issues if I don't immediately refer to OT I'm at least going to talk to my occupational therapist about it and see what they think and nine times out of ten they're going to say well yeah go ahead and just have them you know make the referral and we'll, we'll check it out mm. All right, got one more that popped up and uh, they would wanna know about food allergies. Yeah, because I'm not sure if you guys are super familiar with EOE, but one of the telltale signs of EOE is that we start refusing to eat. Hmm. So because of it's constantly hurting. Um, and right at his age too, uh, one year, six months is a common time for EOE to be identified, if not before. Um, but oftentimes it's right around then and Honestly, most EOE cases don't get diagnosed until they're like two, mm. which is so sad and scary. And I cannot imagine having an allergy that severe for that long. Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely things to look out for, for sure. Okay, let's jump over to the other one. And that is one where we can do... I think this one has a question of what referrals would we make, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Um, right? And then there's another, what referrals would we make? And then what might your initial diagnosis be, right? Is that, are those two of the questions? Yes. Okay, so let's do those two questions with this one and then we can do, we can open it up for any, any other questions. Okay, so for our second case study, Jillian is a two-year, four-month-old female who was referred to ST services by her pediatrician due to concerns of a swallowing deficit. Her mother reports she is constantly battling upper respiratory infections, coughs at least once every meal, and has big coughing fits or choking spells at least once a day. She is currently taking omeprazole. She does not have any known allergies. Her mother reports a normal pregnancy and delivery with no complications. Jillian has seen a GI doctor for her GERD, but has not seen them in six months. Jillian is starting to refuse foods such as crackers, PB&Js, which were a highly preferred food, meats, and fruit snacks. So my first question for everyone is, what should you assess during the evaluation? So what are you looking at? What are, are you trialing? Like, yeah, where, where are you guys going with the information provided here? What's your next step? This participant would return would recommend a return visit to GI since it's been um, six months. And because of the upper respiratory infections, they would want them to see Jillian to see a pulmonologist. Is there anything else y'all might want to do or refer out for? All right. Um, another entry is that they need more information on function of airway, tonsils, ENT, GI, as well as a swallow study to rule out aspiration. 
And another entry um, recommends a GI, or sorry, <laughs> I totally, it says ENT. And I said, a GI consult, like, <laughs> no, literally says ENT. <laughs> Just <laughs> making things up at this point of the night. <laughs> Um, so this is one, guys, that if you were with us last week, we talked about oftentimes um, people kind of forget about how as our kids grow, they also need to change their medication dosage. So with this little one, she we went back to the GI doctor, we upped our own result, and we also had a swallow study, found out that we were indeed aspirating, um, and then we got control of our GERD, which was the reason we were starting to refuse those foods is that medication wasn't the appropriate dosage anymore. So, you know, again, that just goes to show us how important it is to continue to work with our specialists. Okay, now next question, really quick like, because we are like fastly running out of that precious time. What specialist would you refer to? Now we did kind of cover this. There were ENT, yeah. pulmonologists, yeah. GIs consulted. I think we said what would, what would a possible like treatment goal would be. Yes. So what would be your suspected diagnosis for this patient? Although I think you kind of like put the cat out of the bag with your last time because yeah. you were like, yeah. she got the swallow study, she is aspirating, mm -hmm. you got the medication under control. So yay, if, we did if it. We know if we know all of those things though, what what might you guys be working on? If we know that she was aspirating on thin liquid um, and she did, they did adjust that medication to where um, she was no longer having issues with the GERD. And we slowly but surely got those feet back. Um, what is something that you might want to, to address? Yeah, if we're, if the GERD's under control, then the main issue would be the aspiration. So I'm going to do swallowing exercises. How do you do yeah. swallowing exercises with a child? Like I'm just like all in adult world. And I'm like, how does that transfer? Do you do like effortful swallows with children? <laughs> you can do an effortful swallow if they'll do them. But as far as all the other wonderful exercises, you really can't. You have to get super creative. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right, Caitlin, what's next? Now just question and answer and then we'll let you guys all go enjoy the rest of your evening and go to bed if you need to or whatever whatever's next for y'all <laughs> so really just questions um and then i will type in the chat okay I will type, while you're, uh, my yeah while you're putting in your guys. email in there we had a question from the audience so I, i'm pretty sure this is referring to the the case study here with jillian uh, would you try the SOS technique too as part of her therapy? I'm thinking that maybe you're doing that as part because she started refusing those preferred foods. So to like ease her back into it and get her acclimated to that again, would you do um, SOS? So she was one that I, I did a mixture um, to get her back into it. We did a mix of the behavioral and the SOS method. Um, because a lot of hers was purely behavioral at that point because she had developed that aversion because she associated it with pain. So whenever she was eating those foods, she was having an increase in that reflex, which makes sense with not so much the fruit snacks, um, but as far as crackers, PB&J, and meat, um, those can just be a little bit more irritating towards that acid production and acid reflux side. Um, and so that was one <clears throat> where 
we basically have to show her, you know, food spot theory and working through some of those behavioral techniques. And then just for her, a lot of praise was key. And the more we praised, the more likely she was to pray. Um, but yes, that's a great idea. Okay, great. So, um, all right. Is that everything? Are we ready to wrap up? Because I don't see any more questions from our participants tonight. Well, I just want to say thank you guys for coming. Um, again, those of you that were with us last week, thanks for coming back. And those of you that were just with us tonight, I appreciate y'all joining us. Um, and hopefully Leanne and I will be partnering together in the future on more things about pediatric dysphagia and everything that it entails. But yeah. thank you guys. Yeah, thanks for joining us, everyone. And thank you, Caitlin. This was wonderful. This was very like covering all the bases. And of course, I love case studies. I love applying the things that we're learning and putting them in those real life scenarios. I love those. So thank you so much for putting this together for us tonight. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to the hardworking team at speechtherapypd.com for their sweet editing skills and for sponsoring ASHA CEU credit for this episode. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. 